Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zephaniah 3, page 789 in your pew Bibles. Thank you for allowing me another week, weekend, to grieve my dad's passing. And thank you for helping me in that many wonderful notes and cards and calls and just been so very kind. And thank you for referencing stories told about him. And now that he can't listen to my sermons every week as he once did, there will be more stories coming. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 1 to 20 is our text for study this morning. This minor prophet, this very small minor prophet, uh, writing about 600 years before the coming of Christ and maybe a hundred years, less than maybe 50 or so years, 50 to a hundred before this southern kingdom of Judah, uh, the two tribes will be taken into exile because they will not heed the warnings that God has been given them through his prophets. And Zephaniah has been called the fiercest of the prophets makes good sense. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, I'll bring distress. This is God, uh, Zephaniah speaking for God. I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned. Their blood shall be poured out and their flesh will become like dung. It's not exactly what you would expect from a seeker-sensitive preacher. This is fierce language. And uh, I've Frankly, when I was wrestling with whether to break up chapter 2 the way I think it needs to be, we had one sermon on chapter 1 and two sermons on chapter 2 and then this one on chapter 3 and then there'll be another on chapter 3 dealing with shame. I'm tempted, I was tempted to to just merge it all into chapter 3 because it's so much brighter in chapter 3. I checked my notes from a long time ago when I preached this book before, and I put in my notes that in about this section of chapter 2, I was tempted to put it all again into chapter 3, not preach on the ferocity of the love of God. And uh, I noted there that I'd asked some trusted counselors, should I back off? Should I back off of chapter 2 and hasten on to chapter 3? And I wrote down some quotes. One of them was, how are we going to know just how great the good news of the gospel is if we don't know how terrible our sin is? How are we going to know how much God really loves us until we know how ferociously he loves us when we are heading in ways that are destructive? And when I asked trusted counselors around me on this For this time, I got the same advice. Well, we made it through chapter 2. We come into chapter 3, expecting to see the tenacity of the grace of God in Christ, measured by how angry he is when we sin self-destructively. We begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 20, the end of the chapter. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, 
the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice each dawn. He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me? You will accept correction? Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father, your persistent grace is too much to fathom. May it break our hearts if they are in rebellion. May it restore our hearts if they're broken with shame. May it encourage our hearts regardless of where we are. May it convert those who have never experienced the grace and love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In whose name we pray, God's people said together, amen. Almost 25 years ago, a friend of mine was preaching a missions conference in my church where I was pastoring at the time. And he said uh, shortly before we were to go out to the worship service, before he would enter the pulpit, he said, uh, I'd like you to pray for me. Please pray for me because this is the point when I think, I don't know, entering my pulpit, entering this pulpit, I don't know if my son is dead or alive. He briefly shared with me, and then we talked more about it later. My son has wandered away from the faith. He's rejected it. He's rejected us as his parents. He's gotten into drugs. He's gotten into into alcohol. He has felony charges against him for fighting. The places where he is, the, the amount of harmful substances going into his body, the kind of people he's hanging out with. I don't know. It's the most, it's the most unsettling feeling to go into the pulpit, not knowing if my son is dead or alive. But this, he said, George, this I cling to a poem. He wrote at the beginning of his wandering, a poem he wrote and we found reads like this. When deep inside I feel alone and life's false beauty loses light, death's dark journey seems to near and paints its answer seeming clear. While in my soul is such a a fight, wrong seeming true and nothing right, it's at such times through love you've shown that you're always watching from your throne. Loving always from your throne. At times I know I play the fool. At times I know I go my way. Yet all through this I hear your voice because you hear my parents pray. I know in time I will grow up, leave immaturity in the field, and cross the plain to your love rule. The pastor who shared that with me is also the son of a pastor. And this pastor who shared this with me as a son of a pastor wandered from the faith. And he said, you know, my dad tells me often, you don't quit loving that boy. 
Never quit loving that boy. Pray for him. Just like I did for you. Never quit loving that boy. It's what we're discovering in these minor prophets. It's what we hear in Zephaniah. This fierce prophet. He is relating the ferocity of God's love. He refuses to quit loving that boy, Ephraim. No matter how often they turn, how repugnant is their rebellion, how unselfish they are, how ungrateful and presumptuous on God's grace they are. He doesn't quit loving them. And he didn't quit loving them even to the point of sending his son to pursue them, us. That we might be rejoined to him as his children. The preservation of the life of his son, his firstborn son, was not more precious to him than the pursuit of and conquering and wedding of those of us who are in rebellion. Why would we, why would anyone come home to this God? Well, why wouldn't he? Why would not anyone want to come home to this God who is uncompromising in his righteousness? Uncompromising in his righteousness. Now, at first, if you are living in rebellion today, you think that is counterintuitive. Of course, I don't want to come back to one who is uncompromising in his righteousness. That's exactly what annoys me about God, you say. He refuses to hear me out. He refuses to hear how I see things. He refuses to compromise, to grow up, to get with the age, to get on the right side of history. Why would I want to come back to him? That's verses 1 through 8 of our chapter. Where Zephaniah makes his last run at the people of Judah, saying, you must come back to him in his righteousness, away from your rebellion, because you must face the fact that you are rebelling against one who loves you, rebelling against one who has put in place laws and principles and promises that are for your flourishing. And you're only destroying yourself. You're only dehumanizing yourself. And notice the, con, the, 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 uh, the, the characteristics of those who are in rebellion. See if this happens to fit you. In verse 2, this one who is in rebellion listens to no voice, accepts no correction, and does not trust God. Those are the three characteristics. Listens to no voice. No, he doesn't mean Contra, uh, contrasting voices, contradictory voices. It's all those voices that are the voice of God, the prophets, God's word. That's the shorthand. They refuse to listen to God's word. You know, we are heirs of a worldview, especially in the West here, especially in America. It spans back to romanticism in the 18th century, the 1700s. It's led to movements like the French Revolution. The idea was we got to, we've got to cast off all of these oppressive rules that we have been given from the Bible. 
and 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 from these these ideas that God is the Lord and Christ is the center of the universe. We've got to cast all that away. We've become mature, enlightened people, and we've got to be confident in the brains we have and the rationality, the consciences we have. We can decide what is right, even if it is different from what is right in someone else's eyes. It doesn't matter how our view of right squares with anyone else's, we must determine what is right for ourselves. Now, brothers and sisters, we can look down our noses and say, I know that's the problem with this generation. But you know, it's been the problem of many generations. Just how many of us always start, even though we would say we're biblical people, we're evangelical people, we're conservative people, theologically speaking. How many of us, our first default is, I think, I feel. You notice how often that is in our own speech? It's in my speech too. I seldom say anymore, I think. I say, I feel like. And it's unnerving, you know, when I need real truth, like when I'm lost and I ask somebody for directions, do I go right or left? I feel like you should go left. I don't care how you feel. I'll feel for you in another way as a pastor. But right now I want to know, do I go right or left? Not how you feel if I should go right or left. Give me some objective reason why I should go right or left. What do you think? What do you know? It's the way we're approaching life. I feel like. Instead of asking first, what does the Bible say? To be just like Billy Graham, who started almost every sentence of every sermon, the Bible says. Whether he was in a Christian context or a non-Christian context, the first default was, what does the Bible say? Maybe there's not a proof text for it, but there are biblical principles. So I'm going to start with, I'm not going to listen to what the news media or the social media tell me. I'm not going to listen to what my, my constituents tell me. I'm not going to listen first to what my family tells me I must believe or what I feel should be true. I'm going to ask, what does the Bible say? And I'm going to determine that whatever the Bible says, whatever it tells me, whatever I find there, however it puts me out of accord with the rest of culture, I am obeying Christ and his word. They listen to no voice of the prophets. They listen to no correction from the prophets, from the Bible. And they become, they don't trust. I'm not going to trust what the Bible says because it tells me to trust something that's blind, that's nebulous. I want to trust what I can feel, what I can touch, what, what appears to me to be comfortable. It fits with my particular worldview. So they become distant. This is true. The Christian church too. How many emails do we write that say, I think this is true versus... As I read scripture, this is what I think it teaches. That's rebellion. And it's bound up in each of our hearts. And no matter how strongly you think it, no matter how strongly you feel it, how unfair you think he is, God is not going to change. He's not compromising in his righteousness. 
And it's unbelievably comforting if you give yourself to it. Because the one who is uncompromising in his righteousness is the one who has shaped you, has made you to live in his image. The one who has designed this world to work the way it should work. And as much as it may cut against the grain of your feelings or as much as it may put you out of sync with those around you, you may trust that the way to flourishing, the way to true happiness, the way to eternally significant success is submitting to him, to his righteousness revealed in his word implicitly and explicitly. Second reason we must come home to him is that he is unrelenting in his pursuit. So when I say we must come home to him, I'm not just telling you something to do. I'm telling you something that is going to happen if he is pursuing you. If you belong to him as a believer in Christ and you're wandering away, you're in a period of rebellion, it's only a matter of time he's going to conquer you. And you should be aware of this. Those of you who are wandering and never belonged to Christ in the first place, those of you who are rebelling, even though you have professed Christ in the past, I want you to realize what, you, what he does when he pursues and conquers you. It is wonderful news. It's in verses 9 to 13. Now, to appreciate what happens in 9 to 13, you've really got to go back to verse 8 and look what he promised. Therefore, wait for me. The day when I rise up to seize the prey, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble them all in one place and pour out my indignation on them. That sounds very absolute, doesn't it? That's the promise of the great day judgment. Not the, not the intermediate judgment, the discipline that's going to come as Babylon comes and takes Judah away into captivity. This is a description of the great day, the end of time when all the souls will be gathered before God and he will judge them. He'll divide the sheep from the goats. The goats will go to hell and the sheep will go to heaven. That absolute day of judgment. It seems like the end right there, doesn't it? But then verse 9 comes. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. God says, before, before that final day of judgment, I'm going to interrupt it. And we're going to do a great work of redemption. He does it uh, eventually by leading the, the, the people of Judah out of captivity in Babylon. But he does it at Pentecost. After Jesus has died, he's been raised to life. And the the, the apostles are preaching at Pentecost. And what comes down on their heads? Fire. The fire that's promised up here. I am going to send the fire of my wrath on all the earth. But intermediately, he caused the fire of judgment to fall on the heads of the apostles. To preach warning and to preach grace. And to say, I will not fall on it, on your heads with it yet. I'm announcing to you the good news. Come to Christ, you'll escape this judgment. And then that fire spreads, that good news spreads through 
the earth. This is the time of God's mercy. This is that intermediate period that we read about now in verses 9 through 20. What is happening right now as God is saving from all over the world. And this is what he does. Because that fire of wrath has fallen on Jesus Christ. Those who answer that apostolic message. Those who say, I am as sinful as you say I am. Take my sin away and bring me under the cross for salvation from judgment. Here's specifically what he does. He purifies you. Verses 9 and 15. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. And again, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never fear evil again. What's he describing in that purification? He's describing justification against us when we rebel because he's a just God. We are deserving of his judgment He caused that judgment to fall on Christ. He became sin for us. And so how do we escape that judgment? By coming under Christ, by embracing the Christ of the cross. And he hides us in his righteousness and he makes us pure. He makes us clear of judgment. That's what happens when you come home. Not only that, he humbles us. Verses 10 through 11. In other words, when he brings that justice on us. You see that language? He brings justification on us and makes us just. He makes us doers of justice. And that begins with a humble heart, verses 10 and 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. We'll talk more about shame next week. Because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. For then I will remove your midst, your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave you in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Here's what humble people do. Humble people never think. I really deserve God's love. I really deserve his goodness. I don't do the bad things that I see other people do. As God grades on a curve, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in the upper 10%. I'm a decent citizen. I think the right way about things. That's not a humble person. Neither is it a humble person who says, I'm not good enough. I've got to work harder. I've got to make myself better. I've got to hide away from people and conquer this shame, become respectable, and then I'll... That's not humility either. That's delusion. It's the pride that says, I can make myself better. Humble people are those who say, I am as sinful as you say I am. And your love for me is inexplicable. I just receive it. You have made me just by the justification of Jesus. And so my grateful duty to you, Lord, 
is to respond in loving obedience to you and seek the same for everybody around me. To seek that others would be treated justly, not because they deserve it, but because of your mercy and grace that's been shown to me. To seek the salvation of others, not because I want them to become as good as me, but because I am so grateful for what God has done undeservedly to me. Final thing I want you to see into this topic of his being unrelenting is that he conforms us to his purposes, which I've already started to talk about. Verses 12 to 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. These are ones who in their humility receive into their midst those who are different from them. You see verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. Cush is North Africa. Cush is Ethiopia. Cush is the center of the oldest Christian church next to Jerusalem. It's the center. It was the center of scholarship. It was the the center of thriving Christianity. And there's still such a strong uh, uh, presence today there in that city. And God says... When you're truly humble, when you recognize that you don't deserve to be brought to fellowship with me, and therefore you don't deserve to be brought to my holy mountain, that is the church, then you recognize the church is not yours. It's not yours for determining what it should be or what it should look like or what it should, how, uh, what, what fits your taste. You want it to be comfortable for yourself. No, it is a church for all the people's as the entrances of our church say. A prayer for all, the, a praying, praying place for all the nations. It is that place that is anticipatory of the complexion of heaven where those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered in one place serving and worshiping the same God. We must not be content until our church resembles that complexion that fits this Old Testament picture realized in the New Testament Pentecost. Humble people, people humbled by God's grace, view things that way. They are as unrelenting about it as God is. Finally, I want you to see this, that it's unimaginable. I have unbelievable in your, in your outline, but that's not a very good point for a sermon that something is unbelievable. This is unimaginable. I want you to believe it. It just seems too good to be true. Verses 14 to 20. Here is is language that is reminiscent of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 about what Jesus the King is coming to do. How he will change these rebellious people into worshipers who are free of their shame and love him with their whole hearts. He, first of all, propitiates. 
I know that sounds like a long, fancy theological word, and it is, but we need it. It occurs in the Bible. It's in the New Testament in three places. Romans 3.25, 1 John 2, 2, and 1 John 4.10. That he propitiated. Christ came when he died on the cross. He not only justified us and saved us from the, 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 the legal requirements of our sin, but he propitiated the wrath of God. That is, God was justly angry against us for our sin. We were his enemies. And Jesus made a peace treaty. Jesus took the wrath of God due